Heavenly Father, may your spirit now enable us to discern your word. Keep me from error, keep me from pride. May your grace be at work amongst us in transforming power, we pray. Amen. So the crowd was gathering. Some had travelled for several days. Uh, The guest speaker had generated no small amount of attention. Blessed are you who are poor, he begins. A hush comes over the crowd. This young man was different to the teachers they'd heard. Blessed are you who are hungry, he continues. Power, wealth, influence, he seems to mock them. He is concerned rather with the coming kingdom and the age to come. Blessed are you who weep. He is thoroughly countercultural. His teachings are revolutionary. And now, to a crowd of Jews, a race born into slavery, a nation that has fought with all its neighbours and a people who, for the last 600 years, have been subject to cruel oppressors, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And from here, Jesus goes on to preach what was then and is still today a radical, seemingly nonsensical, even absurd approach to dealing with those people in this life who give us the most grief. This is a difficult word, and it's my prayer that today uh, we might be convicted by this passage afresh and be blessed by God with the courage to allow his eternal word to transform our day-to-day lives. I hope that by the end of the sermon we can look at this passage and we can consider, firstly, the outworking of Christian love envisaged in this passage. What is this going to look like in your life and mine? Secondly, we're going to try and fit this passage into the context of the Bible as a whole. We're going to ask, are there any other passages which help us to understand and to correctly apply this teaching? Thirdly, I want us to ask the question, why? Why pursue a path that's going to leave us so vulnerable? This passage begins with a demand to love some pretty unlovable sorts of people. Do you have an enemy? Someone that makes your blood boil? Who is it that you're prone to having a whinge about? Is there someone you avoid? Someone perhaps you're afraid of? Who is it that hates you? Does anyone curse you? Have you ever been ripped to shreds by someone else's words? Have you ever been the subject of abuse? These are dreadful questions that we need to consider. Um, And perhaps maybe a better question to ask is, is there anyone who hasn't had to endure a variety of these unpleasant interactions? I suspect that for most of us, these experiences, we've not only experienced them, but we experience them not infrequently. When you do experience them, how do you react? Are we in the practice of applying the virtues in this passage, the passage that Kylie read for us kindly, to everyone or only to a select few? Love those who love you. 
maybe is our practice. Do good to those in high places. Definitely bless those who promote you. Lend to the one who pays compounding interest. To the one who strikes you, strike him back twice as hard. And if someone takes away your cloak, take him to court. The generosity envisaged in this passage does not come naturally. As Jesus infers from verses 32 to 34 that we'll look at later, we're much more inclined to only bestow our goodwill on those who will reciprocate. But this is more, but this is no more than the virtue of sinners. We're compelled here by the words of Jesus, whatever your current practice in this regard is, be ready to change it. We're urged not just to reduce our morality to the level of the immoral society we live in. Jesus knows the the so-called generosity of this world. 21st century Australia likes to think of itself as a very moral place where our social interactions overflow with respect and love and inclusion. But Jesus speaks of a righteousness that this world does not know and without the transformation of the gospel cannot know. Consequently, he doesn't, even about, he doesn't even bother to address these instructions to the world, but only to those who will hear him, to those who will follow him. Jesus speaks of interactions that are more inclusive than 21st century Australia. He speaks of a love that is deep and flows with generosity and personal sacrifice. Love your enemies, he says, We're no longer oppressed by Roman soldiers, as Jesus' first hearers were. But we don't usually have to look too hard to find those who staunchly oppose us. How do you feel towards that angry neighbour or the scheming co-worker? What's your attitude to those who seem so diametrically opposed to everything you believe in, be they activists or politicians or a lobby group? When you see them on TV, how do you feel? Does your chest tighten in a knot? How do you think Christ feels for them, for these lost sinners? Do good to those who hate you, he implores. Do you have a soured friendship that now runs with discord? Is there a family member you avoid because of their vindictive ways? When was the last time you did something nice for them? Jesus continues, bless those who persecute you. Uh, sorry, bless those who curse you. You see him approaching in your rearview mirror. He's probably driving a Holden Commodore and he's probably driving it a lot too fast. And as he passes you, he suddenly cuts in front of you, missing you by an inch. And then, as he speeds off into the distance, he flips you the bird. And as you see him tail off, How likely are you to mutter underneath your breath, God bless that man. (laughs) I suspect we all have a lot of room for improvement. My wife is laughing at me right now. She knows how much improvement I here need. Pray for those who abuse you. Do you have a boss that abuses your rights or a landlord that abuses the contract or a relative that just plain abuses you? Have you prayed for them? You've probably prayed for the abuse, prayed that God would bring it to an end, but have you prayed for the abuser? 
To the one who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The love that Jesus teaches is one that accepts being vulnerable. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. The love that Jesus teaches accepts sacrifice, even deprivation. I don't want us to break this passage today down into half a dozen distinct commands. Not that I think this passage is less than that, but I think this passage is more than that. We have here a picture of a profound and new paradigm about how we as Christians relate to those who are, who are unpleasant, who are adversarial towards us. It is so radical that we find it hard to accept, but this shouldn't, well, we shouldn't be surprised at this because Jesus is asking us to renew our minds and to be a different people, a holy people. And finally, Jesus gives us what has come to be known as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I suspect we've all heard this an awful lot, and I suspect to a lot of us it's probably lost a lot of its meaning, and, and perhaps this is because we primarily heard it as kids, and we primarily heard it in the context where we were doing the wrong thing. Don't snatch that toy, don't hit your sister, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And potentially, after we've heard that enough times, we've probably reinterpreted it to be something more along the lines of, don't do unto others what you don't want them to do unto you. but that is not a command to love but to disengage and Jesus' actual command is so much more he doesn't just want us to to bite our lip to sit on our hands you know don't provoke don't retaliate then you're doing a good job no he's calling us to more than that Jesus' actual command goes further this is a command to positively engage others with Christian kindness to love them by treating them as we would want to be treated This is a command that can never be fulfilled, never be completed. Who here would want an end to loving, devoted service from another? And so we are called to do to others. The Christian life, as Jesus here teaches, is one where we are continually, lovingly, giving of ourselves to others. Okay. Now, this is a hard passage, and um, some of you might naturally find yourself thinking, there must be limits. There has to be some fine print here. This is just not possible. Surely, if we're going to take this passage literally, it's going to be a complete disaster. Two ideas in this passage, I think, seem particularly fraught with danger. Firstly, the idea of turning the other cheek. And secondly, this apparent readiness to relinquish our possessions. Um, you know, at so much as being asked. There are a lot of greedy people out there in this world, and think about it. If they learn that we're just going to give them whatever they want every time they ask, you know, who knows where that's going to end? They're going to have a field day with us. What about theft? You know, someone steals your car. No worries, mate. Give me a call on Monday and I'll sign it over into your name, you know, have a good ride. Um, this is going to be very difficult for us. And turning the other cheek, how does this apply to situations, say, as domestic violence? That's a very ugly word, but you know, we have to confront this because this is, this is the society we live in. This passage that we're looking at today must, must certainly be taken in the context of the larger body of Scripture 
And I think we'll find that our actions are informed by three considerations. And I want to spend a little bit of time just uh, hashing that out. Uh, firstly, concerning Christian charity, we find that Christian charity should be overlaid with wisdom. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul gives instructions to the young pastor, uh, Timothy, about which widows to put on the church's uh, social welfare allowance, as it were. It seems that those with the greatest need are prioritised. Likewise, when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he states that the one who is unwilling to work shouldn't receive their charity. You can find that in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. The idea is that if someone can provide for their own needs, then so they should. Um, secondly, concerning turning the other cheek, we find that while the early church willingly endured persecution, they didn't exactly ask for an encore. Take Paul as a case in point. Uh, we read in Acts 14, he's in Lystra, he's dragged outside the city and stoned by an angry mob. The crowd leaves him for dead. So on the following day, he leaves. He heads somewhere else. Reading in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes a time when he was in Damascus and the governor wants to seize him. So his friends, they take him and they lower him in a basket over the city wall and Paul runs away. Perhaps most pertinently to our passage today is the time when Paul is arrested at Jerusalem. Paul had gone up uh, to the temple and there an angry mob, motivated in part by first century fake news, starts getting stuck into him. And they're giving him a pretty grand thrashing when the Romans, the, the governing Romans, arrive on the scene. And seeing the chaos, the Romans drag Paul out of that situation into the safety of the barracks. But figuring, however, that he must be a troublemaker of some description, they decide to investigate with the tried and proven method of examination by flogging. You can read the account in uh, Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 22. But they, they've got Paul and they've tied him down and they've stretched him out and they're reaching for the whip when Paul calmly asks, is it lawful for you to beat a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Luckily for Paul, he appears to have had dual citizenship. They'd figured he was just another Jew. Um, and this was, this was not legal and he gets out of this occasion without a single lash. I guess taking that home, we don't need to invite physical violence upon ourselves. Yet, when it is inescapable, be ready to turn the other cheek. Be ready to be wronged and wronged again. We're told in 1 Peter 2, 20-23, let me read it for you. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued, uh, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Thirdly, we must remember that as Christians we are called to love. How might this be a reason to mitigate the surrender of our possessions and the turning the other cheek? Let me explain. Suffering, deprivation and violence and theft and abuse, this might not be the most loving thing we can do. Let's remember that this passage that we're looking at today begins with a call to love and ends with an exhortation to mercy. 
All the commands within this paragraph are governed by love. Love for the other, not love for self. The path of enduring suffering is not always the most loving thing we can do for another. Let's again consider domestic violence. It's rife in our society. Is it loving to be quiet and in so doing allow this evil to continue unchecked and to grow? We've got to remember that this is destructive not just for the person receiving but for the person who is, who is the perpetrator. Would it not be more loving to seek the counsel of the church and to seek how we as a church can bring someone who is afflicted by sin, enslaved to sin, out of their sin. Again, this calls for wisdom, and uh, this is one of the benefits of being involved in a church where we can seek Christian counsel. Um, uh, Getting back to the early church, we see that love was used as a governing principle in the early church as well. Uh, Take the instructions regarding charity to the widows, the ones that we looked at in uh, 1 Timothy 5. Paul notes his concern uh, that it would be detrimental for younger widows, those with the ability to provide for their own needs to be put on the list, as it will encourage them to be idle. In this context, it's not loving to provide them with the financial charity, assuming assuming there's no hindrance to them being able to provide for their own needs. Looking again at Paul and his persecutions, of which there seem to be many. Um, So in Jerusalem, he informs the centurion that he is a Roman citizen before the beatings begin. Why endure a beating if you don't need to? In Philippi, Paul turns the other cheek, so to speak, and endures quite a nasty public beating. We read this story in Acts 16. In short, Paul and Silas are again being confronted by an angry mob. This time the the mob drags them before the magistrates. These would be Greek-origin individuals. And the magistrates give the order that they be beaten with rods and thrown in jail overnight. The following day, the magistrates give the order that they be released from jail. Only now does Paul open his mouth to inform them that he is a Roman citizen. The magistrates are most apologetic because they would be in a lot of trouble if Paul were to complain to the Romans who ruled Greece at that time as well. Why didn't Paul open his mouth earlier? It has been suggested, and this is, this is a little bit speculative, but it has been suggested that Paul has acted in this way out of love for the newly-fledged Philippian church, who were themselves likely to undergo persecution. They, however, were Greek and not Roman, and so they didn't have a get-out-of-jail-free card, uh, card. So Paul demonstrates to them that it is okay to suffer for the sake of the gospel. At the same time, revealing his citizenship the following day, it's not just to rub it in the magistrate's nose. Um, Paul gains nothing for, for himself from this, but hopefully the next time the law courts face another Christian who is dragged before them by an angry mob, they're going to be a little bit slower to just beat the guy senseless. At this point, we've, we've looked at some external context about how to apply this passage, um, but we've digressed substantially and we're at risk of forgetting what uh, Jesus actually said in this passage. Yes, this, the application of this passage must be wisely informed by the larger body of Scripture, but avoid the temptation to try and rationalise away this teaching till we forget the costly discipleship to which we have been called we can always find an excuse to not give of ourselves 
to not allow vulnerability, to not turn the other cheek. Rather, let this passage challenge you. Ask yourself the question, is my sinful soul more at risk of potentially taking this teaching beyond what Jesus intended, or am I more at risk of overlooking this passage and not embracing the selfless nature of Christian love? I suspect these words of Jesus were almost offensive to his audience as he spoke them 2,000 years ago. Let them likewise confront you. He has not given us a long list of fine print outlining where we can be exempt from applying this dynamic teaching. He's asked us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And the heart that is governed by this principle is not going to be seeking occasion to limit Christian generosity, but seeking opportunity to extend this Christian generosity. So we looked at uh, a bit about what this passage says. We've considered some uh, external passages and how they apply to it. I want to finish off uh, with point number three, the why of this passage. What is our motivation for this love? This is a question that we might not be asking presently, but it is a question that we will be asking when things get tough. Why tread this high path with vulnerability and sacrifice at every corner? Why should we love those who mistreat us? Some have, some have suggested that this, is actually, this actually makes a lot of sense. When we love those who hate us, we can diffuse their hate. When we turn the other cheek, we give our enemy no reason to continue their aggression. Look at Gandhi. He, he embraced pacifism and sought to love the enemy. And in so doing, he led India to independence from British rule. This love and generosity, they're disarming. Jesus has taught us the supreme power of love. Love wins. I recently heard uh, a story of a pastor in the village of Le Chambon in France, uh, in German-occupied France during World War II. He and his wife had been involved in hiding Jews from the Nazis. The SS become aware of his activities, and they come to his house to arrest him. He was out at the time, and his wife answers the door, and she realises what this is all about. And yet she invites them in. And she sits them down at the table. And she serves them a hot meal along with the kids. And it's said that she acted with such genuine Christian love and kindness that it brought the SS captain to tears. He didn't cry out loud as he sat there, desperately trying to maintain his composure, though. The drops formed and they started rolling down his cheeks and falling into his soup below. And then the husband gets home and he gets up and they arrest him and they take him away to his death <clears throat> and she becomes a widow. Love wins suddenly seems a rather shallow sentiment. Jesus does not call us to love because it's going to win us friends. Jesus does not call us to love because it's going to open doors. Jesus does not call us to love because it's, the best, because it's the best strategy for self-preservation. If that becomes our motivation, we are going to become very selective about who and when we love. This is the way the world loves, and it is exactly the kind of love 
that Jesus rebukes. If you love those who love you, he says, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus speaks in the same way about uh, doing good to those who will reciprocate and about lending to those who will repay. If our love and charity are restricted to those who reciprocate some kind of favour, so what? This is nothing more than what sinners do. Again, Jesus is setting a pretty high bar. Uh, Take fictional character James. James is a lovely guy. He gets on really well with all his friends. He loves them. They love him. Uh, If you need a hand, he's always ready to help. If you're in a tight pinch, he'll always, you know, he'll even consider uh, giving you a loan. The world says of James, that is a really nice guy. Jesus says of James, James is a sinner. Let your generosity surpass that of James. Let your generosity mirror the character of your heavenly father. And this, we find, is the motivation of our love. We're not living for this world, therefore we're not seeking advantage in this world. But we are living for the age to come, and our desire is to be conformed to the likeness of our Heavenly Father. Our reward is indeed greatest when the recipients of our benevolence cannot repay us. Because in showing such love, we demonstrate that we are born of God, and we are children of the age to come. Love does not always win. Love hurts, love sacrifices, love is short-changed, love is abused. But when we feel like we have poured out ourselves and got nothing in return, then, then we remember that we are children of God. And we are carried on by an unremitting desire to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. In closing, let us be encouraged by the example of Christ. Jesus was hated. The Pharisees conspired against him. Judas betrayed him. The crowds chanted, crucify him. Jesus was cursed. The false witnesses testified against him. The soldiers mocked him. The onlookers at Golgotha poked fun at him. Jesus was robbed. They took his clothes. Jesus was abused. The judicial system handed him over to the mob because it was politically expedient. The priests struck him in the face and spat at him. The soldiers beat him and humiliated him. And yet, Jesus loved. He did us good. He blessed us. And even as he hung on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what you do. Sorry, no, not what they do. And when we endeavour to love like the triune God has loved us, being empowered to do such by his transforming grace, then we manifest to the world a glimpse of the divine, a glimpse of a father who would send his only son to be reconciled to his adversaries, a son who would bear all manner of rejection by those for whom he was giving his life, a spirit given to repentant sinners, a spirit who claims them, faltered as they are to be sons and daughters of the living God. And now the word of God implores us. Reading again from the passage. 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Amen.